great. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is a guest I'm really excited about. Uh, you've obviously heard of him, Brad Stone. Brad is the, the head of global technology coverage at Bloomberg um, and also a really uh, successful tech author. He's got a new book out called Amazon Unbound. Uh, it's already on the bestsellers list of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. So, Brad, congrats and, and thanks for coming on. Thanks. It's always good to talk to another Bradley. Yeah, exactly. We have we have to. There's not that many of us, so we have to uh, support stick together. Each other. Stick together, exactly. So I'm sure you've asked this question a lot. You know, you, you wrote a book eight years ago about about Amazon, and obviously wrote wrote a, a book in between about Uber and Airbnb and other other startups, and then came back to Amazon uh, in the new book. Um, what's the thing that kind of changed the most and surprised you the most in the time you were away? Well, I, there's there's two things. One, there was the transformation of the man, and that has happened right in front of all of our eyes. The the Bezos of my first book, The Everything Store, was kind of the spindly, somewhat reclusive tech nerd from Seattle who was completely absorbed in the mechanics of business building and technology invention. And as I started this book, Amazon Unbound, at the end of 2017, that was already changing. He was, you know, just muscled up, um, holding Hollywood parties at his home in Beverly Hills, attending movie premieres, enjoying the limelight. And then as I worked on the book, everything, you know, from HQ2 to his battle with the National Enquirer happened. He gets divorced and suddenly, you know, we see him uh, luxuriating on the yachts of Barry Diller and David Geffen and becoming this public figure, uh, somewhat controversial, probably the most famous business person in the world at this point. So that was one thing. And then, then just the total accompanying transformation of Amazon from a company that really was, you know, innovating by and large part, still in the in the book publishing industry with the Kindle, and now has a much broader mandate with Alexa, with building its own transfer, transportation and logistics effort, um, and then is is just a a lightning rod for so much controversy and criticism with regards to how big it is and its its market share and business practices. So those two things really account for a book about transformation of the person and of the company. What what do you think? What do you attribute the personal transformation to? human nature um first of all his his just like curiosity about new things his interest in having new experiences and adventure um like at the one of the words he uses at the company a lot is stasis um he wants to avoid stasis and sitting still he you know it's why he's instituted what he dubs a kind of day one mentality at amazon and I think in his personal life, he's also fearful of stasis. And he he often uses the word adventure. He wants to seek adventure. He when he toasts, he toasts to adventure and fellowship. On July twentieth, he's he's having a personal adventure, going to the edge of space on his new Shepard spacecraft. So I just think it's this like interest in new experiences, meeting new people, trying new things that propelled him, you know, into this kind of upper echelon of elite society and probably, you know, wasn't something that his his now ex-wife, Mackenzie Bezos, had much interest in, now Mackenzie Scott. Um, and so it was, you know, it was like having, like becoming the wealthiest person in the world and having an, an access to, um, you know, elite society, Hollywood society. Um, and he, he just loved it, right? And, and you know, he kind of earned, earned it too. So, um, yeah, I, I think of it as sort of very, very, in some ways, very natural. And and was it sort of clear to him and to everyone on Amazon that his interests had evolved and it didn't make sense for him to be there every day? Or if he's someone who, 
is constantly intrigued by new things, you know, what better platform is there to experiment on than Amazon? Well, so do you mean like why why did he choose why did he choose this month to transition out of the CEO role? Yeah, I guess there's a big I mean, on one hand, it seems like he's doing interesting, fun stuff, movies and space and whatever else, but he is walking away from being the CEO of the right. most powerful company in the world, perhaps. Yeah. Um what how, how do you how do you kind of square that in your head? Well, it's funny because I was finishing the book in, I guess it was late January, and the uh, they made the announcement in their in their earnings release, and it, I was sort of like thunderstruck and immediately panicked. Do I need to rewrite this thing? Yeah. Um, and then I realized that this actually I didn't. The story I was telling in the book was a story of Bezos pulling away from the company, allowing his deputies to run the larger parts of the business, Amazon Web Services and, and Amazon Retail, still staying engrossed in the newer products like like Alexa and the uh, the grocery stores. But by and large, you know, be, like op- his eyes opening to a larger world, becoming embroiled in, in, a, in a battle with Donald Trump uh, via his ownership of the Washington Post, trying to fix his two decade old space company, Blue Origin, and then just gallivanting around the world with his new partner, Lauren Sanchez. So in some respects, I think these trends that have taken him away from the company have been going on for the past five or six years or so. Um, and and look, he's got this deputy, Andy Jassy, who could probably run, go off and run any other company in the world right now. And in fact, Microsoft was, was uh, pursuing him to be the CEO back in, I think, 2014. So in some respects, I think it was natural for him to turn over the keys of day-to-day operations to Andy Jassy and then to move to this executive chairman role. Well, he'll still be the loudest voice in the room, and he says he's still going to work on new projects so it's not like he is leaving uh, completely. But have we seen kind of the best of Jeff Bezos and everything else is in the rearview mirror or someone who's able to create a company like Amazon still have a really big second or third act, even if it's in a different industry, um, to try to transform society? Yeah, I mean, that will be interesting. I, I want to be optimistic about that, particularly with regards to his philanthropy. I mean, he now has, we're talking on a day where his fortune has hit an all-time record, $211 billion. He can be transformational. And he does say he wants to devote a a large portion of his philanthropic legacy to fighting climate change. And my gosh, if, you know, he, he really applies not just his dollars, but his intellect to solving the greatest challenge of our time, you know, that can be a legacy defining accomplishment. And I also think like he, he fashions himself as an inventor, you know, you see this in all his writings and in the few interviews that he does. He wants to be considered an inventor. And in the book, I do tell the story of how he comes up with the idea for Alexa and guides the project through the bureaucracy of the company. And he is, you know, he's come up with the idea for like the Kindle and the Amazon Go grocery store. And so I, I think that, you know, if he if he's serious about spending his time on new projects at Amazon and doesn't get too distracted by like the grand sailing yacht he's building or the opportunities to sit courtside at Wimbledon or, um, you know, go, go to uh, Sun Valley every year, then he can, he can continue to make serious um, contributions. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine he's just too substantive of a person to be permanently distracted by the courtside seats and the yachts mm-hmm. and the parties and stuff like that. I think that's right. But part of the, tra- the, the story, the journey of this book is is him getting to the point where he even does that stuff. I would never have said seven or eight years ago that he was a yacht guy, you know, or that he, you know, he loves to throw Hollywood parties at his Beverly Hills home. 
um, this is where he's gone now. But yeah, he is serious minded. And I do think he'll continue to make contributions. Yeah. So, you know, when you wrote the first book on Amazon, at, at least it didn't feel like it's as divisive as, as a company as it is today. It, it seems like people have very strong views. They, they either love Amazon and, and do all their shopping there, or they think it is just the pinnacle of, of evil uh, and want to boycott it at all costs. Um, was it like that eight years ago? And if not, what, what turned it into this very binary cultural force? It was divisive eight years ago, but um, in the book industry and in in smaller pockets. Um, And so those were the industries, the kind of canaries in the coal mine that I think were witnessing firsthand Amazon's um, sharp elbowed business tactics. And so you could find sellers and you could find book publishers, um, you know, that today and back then disliked the company, felt it, it was impersonal, felt like they were kind of just, it was destroying the economics of their business. And I think what's happened since then, it's not that Amazon has changed really in, in that respect or become more divisive. It's that the company's gotten so much larger. And so now there's sellers all around the world that feel like they had a partner once uh, whose attentions have now wandered or they're subjected to all kinds of chaos on the, on the Amazon marketplace or, or brands who feel like, you know, Amazon is no longer a safe place to list their products. Um, and then, of course, employees in the warehouses eight years ago, um, if any, if anything, maybe things probably were a little bit worse. And, na- and now Amazon realizes that at the scale that it operates, it can no longer be seen as a kind of unempathetic or cruel employer. So you saw Bezos in his last shareholder letter vow to do better. And then they just added to their list of 14 sacrosanct leadership principles two more, one of them vowing to be Earth's best employer. So if anything, the companies maybe become more self-aware and is vowing to do better. Uh, but, but you know, it's it's just that that scope, that size, the $1.7 trillion market cap, actually probably bigger right now because they the stock price soared after uh, the Pentagon killed the Jedi contract. Um, and, and, you know, and, and then uh, this political agreement that the big tech companies, including Amazon, need to be regulated. There's just more attention to how the company operates and, um, it, you know, the challenge of limiting the, the, the muscle, the influence, the, the market power of the big tech companies. Right. I mean, it seems like, to your point, Bezos has become a lot more aware of optics and larger narrative around himself and his company. Um, th- than it used to be. It, it feels that they get some really right and and some really wrong. So, f- for example, uh, I thought the way you handled the National Enquirer uh, photos and issue was was incredibly strong and powerful. Uh, I think his ownership of the Washington Post has to result in him being less disliked by reporters than he would otherwise, and therefore getting uh, even if it's implicitly better coverage. On the flip side, their reading of the local politics in New York City for HQ two c- couldn't have been worse. Right. Uh, so overall, is it is he the one charting the course on all of this? And, and if not, you know, wh- why is there this disparity in performance around these kinds of issues? Well, I mean, we almost have to take them bit by bit because I actually devote chapters in the book to each and, and they're they're very different scenarios. But let's just take the, the National Enquirer first. And then I, you know, I'd love to go further into HQ2 with you. But on, on the Enquirer issue, you know, he, he writes this um famous blog post on Medium uh, saying that owning the post is a complexifier for him and then sort of hand-waving around potential political interference from the Trump administration and even cyber espionage from the government of Saudi Arabia. And what I conclude in the book, Bradley, is that none of that was true. 
Um, there's a possibility still unproven that the Saudis hacked his cell phone, but there's no evidence among the volumes of uh, you know, depositions and emails submitted into the into the many legal cases, and even the FBI's own investigation, that any of that inspired the National Enquirer's investigation. In truth, it was Lauren Sanchez's brother, Michael Sanchez, who who turned over the volume of f- photographs and text messages to the Enquirer. He he had his own bizarre motivations for that. But Bezos, you know, in this um, very very uh, smart medium post, you know, kind of like he you know he turned the media narrative around but in a little bit of a disingenuous way right yeah. do you think yeah. he real did he honestly believe it was those things and then it just turned out to not be or was he saying hey if i claim this all on saudis and trump i'll, I'll, I'll turn the narrative here. right see i that is that is the key question and i actually don't believe it was disingenuous there were great reasons to believe that the Trump administration might be involved, right? We we know about Trump's alliance with David Pecker and AMI, which owns the National Enquirer. And we know that the Saudis were furious at the Washington Post after its uh, dogged coverage of the Jamal Khashoggi murder. Right. And, you know, at the same time, Trump made no secret of his enmity for Jeff Bezos and, and the Washington Post. And, you know, had had a series of of uh, like bizarre accusations against Amazon and the Post being a lobbying arm for Amazon. So it, none of that was hard to believe, which is why I think the public gobbled it up. But at the same time, Bezos and his camp did know that Sanchez had turned over a you know a lot of the information and was a source to the National Enquirer. So I don't think it was disingenuous, but I think it was sort of opportunistic. And it was effective, right? The the cover uh, of Business Week when we ran the excerpts for my book about this topic was like Bezos wins again, and he did win, right? He he won. He sort of manipulated the media and changed the narrative about his own affair. The the editor of the Enquirer, Dylan Howard, got fired after the whole thing, and Bezos came out on top. And h- how much of that is because he has both learned a lot by owning the Washington Post and because sort of the enemy of my enemy thing, where it's because the Washington Post was was so tough on Trump, people who would normally hate Bezos were, were more inclined to like him. You know, I, I actually want to sort of go back to the Everything Store. Bezos didn't like that book. And when it came out, he had his wife and uh, at the time and Andy Jassy and a couple other Amazon executives give me one star reviews. I don't know if you remember that. And it, <laughs> it, it generated a news cycle. And but what it what it impressed to me was how he tends to think outside the box when it comes to kind of media, um, you know, situations or even like critics of the company and just do something unexpected and unpredictable. And that is what he did with the National Enquirer and the negotiation over what they would do with these photos that they hadn't published. He kind of called them out and printed their emails. He just thought completely outside the box. And look, at the time, people were not inclined to think that favorably of any AMI owned publication. So maybe he under implicitly understood that, that his ownership of the Washington Post was going to be much more noble in the eyes of other media in the world than a tabloid newspaper, a, a Trump allied tabloid newspaper's pursuit of uh, disparaging information about his personal life. Right. And then do, do, do you think that it, there are some who say the Washington Post in some ways is the smartest investment Bezos ever made simply because the goodwill he generated from it was so cheap compared to the purchase price. Um, Do you agree with that? And if so, shouldn't every mega billionaire buy a a newspaper? You know what? I don't agree with that 
because when you look at the at the media environment right now around Amazon or around Bezos or the public's impression of them, I don't think goodwill is a word that pops out. I mean, the the coverage of Amazon, even though we as reporters, you know, can admire um, Bezos's the, the way in which he's turned around the post. I don't think it's bought him much goodwill, actually. Um, the coverage has never been more negative. Certainly, if he's if he bought it to accrue political influence in Washington, that failed. You know, there's a political, a rare political agreement that Amazon's market power should be curtailed. Maybe Democrats and Republicans disagree about just how to how to go about that. Um, but I don't know. It feels like um, you know, despite the fact that we all you know can acknowledge that the Post's fortunes have really been revived under Bezos's ownership. I don't think it's bought him much. Do, do you, I mean, look, you work for another billionaire who's, I guess, not quite as rich as Bezos, but but it, but obviously Mike Bloomberg is pretty, pretty wealthy. Right. Do you feel like by being a good steward of Bloomberg News and supporter of it that Mike, does he get goodwill from kind of other reporters as you talk to, to your colleagues at other publications? I mean, that you might be able to answer that question better than I do. I, I think in some respects maybe any goodwill it's generated is counterbalanced by a sense of competitive rivalry, mm-hmm. you know, particularly as it pertains to Bloomberg News. I think, you know, the news organization and the company tend to be viewed. Look, I mean, I think I think reporters maybe I here's how I would answer. I think I think good journalists would put aside personal feelings and cover every company through a skeptical lens. And when it comes to juggernauts like like Bloomberg LP and then particularly Amazon, its size, you know, is in direct proportion to the skepticism that gets generated, you know, despite the ownership of a media company. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think that the the, the media climate, at least around issues that are somewhat political in nature, uh, has gotten uh, so rough that even the goodwill doesn't buy you much. I mean, when, when Mike had challenges as a presidential candidate, the press still kicked the living shit out of him. Um, even if he is a good steward of journalism as the owner of Bloomberg News. Um, So so HQ2, it felt like for a company that is usually so savvy, like such just political malpractice to read the situation that that badly. What do you think happened there? Yeah, totally. And, and, uh, you know, not only do I have a chapter about this in the book, but I have all sorts of internal memos that really describe the decision making process. And I'll let me just call out a couple of points. You know, one is that HQ2 is inspired in large part by the dramatically changing political environment in Seattle. You know, the city council had turned somewhat socialist. Amazon was getting blamed for all sorts of city ills like gentrification and homelessness and rising home prices. And Bezos just didn't feel respected or loved in his in the in the city that Amazon had completely transformed. And, you know, he basically freezes growth of the company in in Seattle and institutes HQ2. It's a very Bezos like approach. He's going to do everything differently. He's not going to he's not going to use the normal development handbook. He's going to have this public auction. Um, he, he sees Elon Musk and companies like Boeing and Foxconn getting these historic development deals, and he wants the same for Amazon. So that's the origin. Now, you know, the political environment is changing during the year-long process. Amazon hits a trillion-dollar market cap. Bezos becomes the wealthiest person in the world. But I actually think, you know, they, they kind of misread, right? So they misread the political env- environment around big companies and how unseemly it would it would look for a big tech company to be seeking these kinds of incentive-laden deals. But 
they also he also disregarded the advice of his of his group. So the the HQ2 team ultimately recommends either Raleigh, Philadelphia, or Chicago for the for the location for HQ2. And Bezos and the S team completely changed that and basically pick New York City and uh, and then Northern Virginia as the ultimate destinations. And, you know, Bezos and the S team, they're very kind of reclusive up in Seattle. I don't think they're paying a lot of attention to politics at the time. And they basically run headlong into the same dynamic in Long Island City that they're running from in Seattle, which is the kind of leftward turn of, of the city government and of, and of the populace. And they just know, not, as you know, Bradley, they know nothing of the reality on the ground in, in Long Island City, and they're completely caught unprepared for the ground battle that they have to wage there as AOC and members of the city council, you know, start to put up opposition to HQ2 in, in Long Island City. Yeah, I mean, it felt like I, I sent Carney an email the day that Cuomo leaked that New York had been chosen saying, look, I don't know how true or not this, you know, Wall Street Journal story is, um, but the the politics are on the ground are, are pretty rough here. Uh, if you still have time to deny it, um, I would do that if I were you, because I think this is going to be a lot harder than you realize. And then I, met, you know, he said, "Well, you meet with the team," and I did. Um, and there was just this complete lack of understanding as to kind of how local politics worked, um, what conditions were like on the ground. Uh, the fact that, you know, if you're the state senator from there, Mike Janaris or AOC or the city council member, Jimmy Van Bramer, you're, you're winning your elections and re-elections with 10, 12 percent turnout in the primaries. And they're just the most left wing anti-Amazon voters you're going to get. And they would have all lost their seats if they had supported Amazon, not not the opposite. In fact, they all got reelected with over 70 percent of the vote uh, after taking Amazon off the table. So. It, to me, that feels like a pretty basic political insight. Um, and I'm sort of I'm, I'm wondering, do you, do you think that the team just didn't realize that and they just trusted Andrew Cuomo too much? Or do you think they knew that? That's why they preferred Philadelphia, Chicago, Raleigh. Um, but Bezos does what Bezos wants. Yeah, interesting. Did the team, did the actual HQ2 development team understand how combustible a situation New York City could be? Um I don't know. I mean, I don't think they, you know, they, they did a really diligent process. Um, and I, and I had, I had the memos and I, and I do think they felt like, you know, it along, along the variables that their original RFP had, had outlined, which included things like, you know, cost of building um, and, and taxes, you know, they knew that New York city and New York state, um, performed relatively poorly over the, you know, the guidelines that the, the company had initially set out. Um, so I don't know that they ever really did a real political calculus of, of, of what going to New York City would, would look like, in part because it just, the, the whole region performed so poorly uh, on, on the original RFP guidelines. But that's probably part of the problem, right? When, when Bezos ultimately made this, uh, um, you know, very subjective decision to go to New York and, and DC and kind of validated all the critics who said he just wanted to, he was, he would just go where he had per, personal homes, which he ended up doing. Um, they were just, yeah, they were just unprepared. And the, the fact that they thought that Cuomo and de Blasio, two politicians who never agreed on anything, you know, that their endorsement would be enough to carry the day kind of tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. I mean, de Blasio 
abandoned ship. It felt like the, the minute the first person criticized the deal and, and never really came came back around. Um, want to pivot the time we have left to, to your day job uh, as the head of global technology coverage at Bloomberg. And just what's your read on this DD thing? Is this just, hey, this is what happens uh, when a Chinese company lists in the U.S. and there's always going to be some trouble with the government, but at the end of the day, uh, they'll work it out? Or do you think this is like a totally new thing that's never been encountered before? I mean, it is new, right? Because there are plenty of Chinese companies that have successfully listed in the in the U.S. But clearly, the Chinese government is increasingly uncomfortable with that, and um, you know, is sending a strong message here with with Didi, um, one that will be heard by other Chinese tech companies that are looking to list in the West. So it'll be interesting. Obviously, we're covering that pretty aggressively, um, you know, and I don't know how that's going to turn out. And do, do you think the Chinese government wants? Uh, just more deference paid to it and more attention and, and more tribute? Or do you think that they have a more specific, like, we are worried, we're actually worried about the cybersecurity of our country if this company goes public or if these guys list in the U.S. as opposed to in Hong Kong or things like that? I mean, I, I haven't followed this as closely as some of my editors and reporters in China. It feels to me like maybe some of the cybersecurity worries are is a is a little bit of a story that they're, they're telling that it's more about kind of deference and trying to support um the the local marketplaces um you know ra- rather than kind of real concerns about data um but i don't know i actually probably shouldn't speculate on that so you see obviously trends in technology changing all the time. And you mentioned before with Amazon that they've achieved the rare political feat of getting people from both parties uh, to oppose them, at least based on the public and political sentiment around the, the, the biggest tech companies. Do you see a world where there isn't meaningful reform around privacy and antitrust and that it just it bungles long as it currently is? Or, or do you think it's just a, a moment in time that'll change? No, I think there will be significant changes, right? There, it's hard to imagine this broad of a political coalition coming up with nothing. I, I do get skeptical when we talk about sort of existential ends to these companies, right? And the 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 key point to me was when a district judge um, basically sent the FTC's case against Facebook back to the agency, saying that it hadn't properly defined the the, the market for Facebook's monopoly. And I think they'll have the same problem on, on cases against Amazon. You know, Amazon operates in such large industries and in terms of overall retail has a comparatively small um, market size. Even in e-commerce, it's 40 to 50%, same with the, the cloud. And so I think in terms of like splitting up the company, ending its ending its rise, it, it's it's, you know, these are cases that take years and years. Nothing will happen soon. And I think in the end, you know, Amazon, unless it voluntarily breaks up, um, nothing of that size or scale happens. But in terms of, you know, laws that change the way the company behaves, I think I think that's inevitable. Things like um, how Amazon pursues private label brands, you know, in part by looking at what's selling on its third-party marketplace. Amazon denies that it does that. In my book, I quote employees that have the spreadsheets that show that they have done it. Or, you know, the the case that the the AG 
of Washington, D.C., Carl Racine recently brought um, accusing Amazon of, of illegally mandating that um, third party sellers or brands give it the lowest price vis-a-vis uh, other uh, online um, stores. You know, I can see Amazon either walking away from that or being forced to. So, yeah, I think conduct will change. Um, I think I think, uh, you know, that w- new laws will come. But it's unclear to me whether that slows Amazon's growth at all. I mean, in some cases, you know, so, some of these laws might actually help Amazon. Um, if it um, no longer is able to launch private label products like Amazon Basics, you know, then arguably, you know, it has more sellers competing for, for more space on its website, buying more advertisements, and revenues go up. So it'll be interesting to watch. So then the last question, I guess two-part question, is Amazon unstoppable? And if the answer is yes, is that a problem? Yeah, that's a, a, a big question. I mean, in some respects, Amazon is unstoppable, um, particularly in e-commerce, right? It, the pandemic was this bizarre accelerant for Amazon. And we know from history what it does with increasing revenues and increasing profits is it builds more Amazon. So now we have fulfillment centers that are closer to population centers, more drivers, faster delivery, lower prices. Like there's nobody within miles of Amazon, you know, figuratively and literally who can match that proposition. But in terms of other pockets of the business, uh, the cloud or entertainment uh, with Prime Video or devices, Amazon's got a lot of competition. Um, And, you know, and I don't think um, so. I don't I don't think it's uh, omnipotent. It, you know, is it a problem? I mean, is it a problem? I mean, in some respects, like we live in a world not of monopoly, but of oligopoly. And, yep. you know, the biggest threats to Amazon are Facebook and its e-commerce business and Google and its e-commerce business and Microsoft and Google with their cloud divisions. And, you know, all these companies are heavyweight prize fighters that are going to be slugging, that, slugging it out till the end of eternity. So I don't know, you know, in, in large part, these things are great for customers. Um you know, there's certainly plenty of reasons to worry, but I don't know that it's a sort of existential society defining problem. And maybe that's why I continue to be kind of optimistic about tech and enjoy uh, writing these books and covering the industry. Yeah. And that sounds like maybe we got the next book now uh, all, all laid out here. So anyway, Brad Stone, thank you so much for joining us. And to the listeners, please go out and, and, and pick up a copy of, of, of Amazon about the Brad's new book because it is uh, really fantastic and as you've heard from the last half hour uh, as insightful as you're going to get thank you Bradley 